Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome back to Ausbiz. I'm David Kosh. Great to have your company for the next hour for The Call. Ten stocks that you've suggested we take a look at. I put them to two experts and we do it all in 60 minutes. It's a lot of fun. It's incredibly informative, particularly with these two as part of our expert panel. Um, Howard Coleman from Team Invest. Team Invest follows the Buffett, Bircher, Hathaway strategy of uh, of investing. Howard, good to have you aboard. Yeah, good to be on. And Scott Phillips from Motley Fool, who also follows Bircher Hathaway. <laughs> and when I was locked in with COVID at uh, the end of last week, I was following uh, Scott on Twitter, as I do passionately and regularly. And he informed me that Bircher Hathaway shares uh, had topped $500,000 a share. I thought, blimey, that's a good bit of trivia. And then Scott said, and I must declare, I've been a long-time holder of Berkshire Hathaway shares. <laughs> I thought, at five hundred grand each, um, Scott Phillips, that they, blew they my mind. Five, they hit 525000 yesterday, and I can also say I'm proudly been an owner for a long time, and, really long time. Yeah, and Scott, you but and then you clarified a bit later that it was B class yeah. shares. So I don't <laughs> exactly. Thank you for adding that, mate. Because if you can say Berkshire Hathaway shares plural at the current price, yes. you don't have to work for a living. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, only the B class. I owned them for a little while. So I made an okay profit on them so far. But yeah, right. long time shareholder. Big fan of Warren Buffett, of course. Both he and Charlie Munger are absolute geniuses. Yeah. Uh, they won't be with us for all that much longer, so we've got to suck all the life out of them we can in the meantime. Uh, <laughs> good to be a shareholder. But yeah, 500 grand, mate. It's a, it's a heck of a story. And you know, when people say, how much higher can shares possibly go, whether it's CBA or CSL or any of these stocks, Cochlear, just you know, 300, 200, 500, 1,000, or 500,000, wow. a reminder that there is no cap for share price if the business keeps performing. It is. They are remarkable, and and Howard, they they recently put out their recent letter to shareholders as well. Yes. Didn't they the last couple of weeks? Um, anything new you gleaned from that? Well, in fact, it was a shorter letter than Warren has normally put out. Um, I'm sure he'll make some jokes about it at the AGM about uh, um, seeing as the amount of years that he expects to be on the earth uh, has been shrinking. So is his letter. But it, it was one of the shortest, but has always contained uh, the usual nuggets about compounding and the, the value of buying into good businesses and staying in them a very, very long time. Um, so there was there was nothing particularly new but it's become a more and more complex business to explain. So a fair bit of his letter now explains a bit more for right. investors who don't know the company well. Yeah, and, he's, and, he's, and I've owned the shares since uh, long before they hit $100,000. So uh, yeah. uh, uh, when they hit 100000 I thought, my God, how can a share price get to $100,000? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? All right, let's get into... Uh, 
into what we're going to be looking at today. The first five stocks we're going to have a look at this half hour. Uh, James Hardy, Technology One, Regional Express, Vmoto and Next DC. A good mixture of stocks there that we're going to uh, ask Howard and Scott to cast their eye over. But uh, even though we're getting to James Hardy next uh, first up, uh, stock of the day is in a similar sector as well. Uh, Boral making news today, warning of a hit to earnings thanks to lower sales volumes on the tails of the wild weather in New South Wales and Queensland. This as the spike in coal and diesel are expected to uh, more than offset any product price increases with the company saying its hedging is in place for most of its expected diesel usage in April, but uh, none thereafter and no hedges against the coal price. Um, which coral, of course, is at record levels at the moment. And people may not, uh, may have forgotten that Boral does have an interest in the coal sector. Um, Scott Phillips, what did you think of uh, their update today and also uh, Boral at these prices? Yeah, Koshi, pretty ugly update. Unfortunately, the news wasn't good across the board. Shares only down 3%. I first looked at that and thought, oh, well, the market's taken that pretty well. Then I remembered the shares have just about halved over the last couple of months. So maybe this was already foreshadowed. Maybe this is just the, uh, you know, the, the old uh, buy the rumour, sell the fact. In this case, it was sell the rumour and sell the fact. Shares are down meaningfully. Yeah, I've, I mean, asked a lot over the last couple of months, what businesses do you buy in a rising interest rate environment? That's a whole conversation for another day. But my answer normally starts with, actually, let's start about with the ones to avoid, not just the ones to buy. When you think about that, Companies with high levels of debt are one. The other is businesses with no pricing power. Boral, unfortunately, is that sort of business. Very, very difficult to get pricing power with rising costs, as you mentioned. Very hard to justify or to get through sufficient price increases to cover the the, the, the increase in, in costs. Add the rainfall that you say, that's a one-off, that's okay. Um, it'll it'll come and go, hopefully it'll come and go. The once in a hundred year storms are happening a little more than once in a hundred year these days, but hopefully they go away. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get a better a better future. I don't love the business, mate. I, I just it's a really hyper competitive industry. They've tried their best. I am heartened that Kerry Stokes taking a decent chunk of it, and Seven will be very very keen uh, to make sure they are um, you know sort of calling the uh, or reading the right act. Maybe is a better way to put it in in the yeah. Boral chair, uh, boardroom. But for now, I think one best left on the shelf. Yeah, Howard, what do you think of the update? Because they did return capital, didn't they, after they sold the US business and dividends and things like that, which sort of cushions that um, that big drop in the in the share price chart mm. a little bit, not a heap, yeah, but a little uh, bit. And again, if we channel Warren Buffett, uh, Warren always says the three key things you look for when you're looking at metrics are consistently high return on equity. Well, this company's return on equity has averaged about 5% a year for 10 years. That's neither uh, good nor excellent. I mean, it's exceptionally poor. And return on equity puts a cap on your return. If a company can only return uh, or can earn 5% return on equity over the long term, that's all you can likely get out of that mm. company in a combination of capital gains and dividends. Um, secondly, uh, you want that to be achieved with low debt. Their debt's reasonably low, so that's fair enough. And you want their earnings per share to be growing materially faster than inflation. Now, Boral's earnings per share have been growing materially slower than our uh, minuscule inflation we've experienced up till now. So I hate to think what they're going to look like now that inflation is rising. 
and looking like it's going to rise pretty high. So uh, definitely not a company that would enthuse our members at Team Invest. They're looking for 15 to 20% returns on a consistent basis, long term, more like Berkshire Hathaway. And you're not going to get that from a company that has a 5% return on equity. Okay. Um, Scott, let's go to our first stock, though. Do you not just like Boral or do you not like the whole sector? Because Brady wants a view on James Hardy. I know they are different businesses and and sort of have different product strengths. But basically in that sector, which a lot of people would say, oh, we've got a housing boom going on, all that sort of stuff. Wow, that's going to be great for it. Or rebuilding in the Northern Rivers or around Brisbane. This should be good for these sorts of companies. And it probably will in the short term, Kosh. And this is the hard one for knowing who you are as an investor, knowing what you're looking for is really, really important. If you're someone who wants to or thinks you have the skills to play a short term trading game, you might really look at that and say, hey, maybe there's a chance that over the next six, nine, 12, 18 months, I can buy Hardy now, do really well over the short term as that re- uh, you know rebuilding commences or continues. But when the housing cycle turns, when the reconstruction stops, what happens then? You've got to time your entry, time your exit. I'm not even sure it's possible. And I have got to say, I haven't looked at anything around technicals or trading. It's not my thing. So maybe that's possible. The long-term risk, the long-term challenge is, as Howard's already mentioned, this is an industry, generally speaking, plagued by low returns. If you're going to play this space, I absolutely prefer Brickworks, and I own shares in Brickworks for full disclosure. So let's get that out of the way too. Right. But uh, it's it's just a business. These guys have really struggled over time to produce reliable returns. And if you're going to buy a business and hold it for the long term, I'm a long term investor. We are at the Motley Fool. You want to buy a business that has the ability to compound regularly over time. Now, I don't necessarily need it to be a straight line compound. We'll talk about a business in a minute that has done a spectacular job of exactly that. I don't mind a bit of variability. I don't even mind a bit of cyclicality. If that's the business you're buying, you know what you're getting and you're paying a reasonable price for it. Uh, Hardy just is not attractive enough. The growth, I don't think are going to be strong enough for long enough to justify a purchase, unfortunately. Again, in these sort of industries, if you're in a tough industry, you want the best management in the place. And that's, again, why I've gone with Brickworks personally and on behalf of our members rather than the other two. Boral, James Hardy, the guys are doing the best job they can, I'm sure. Right. Uh, no slight on their management, but Brickworks is head and shoulders above the rest of the industry. You've got a really, really nice model. If you want building materials exposure, if you like the idea of reconstruction, I'd go bricks and tiles. Uh, we haven't got time to do Brickworks in detail now, but suffice it yeah. to say, they're all similar. Brickworks is different, I think better in a couple of different ways. Management and that property portfolio, that's enough for me. So if you want building materials exposure, go Brickworks. I wouldn't buy James Hardy. Okay. Uh, Howard? James yeah, Hardy. I don't know that I've got terribly much to add to that. I think Scott summed it up beautifully. If, you, if you're looking for the best in the sector, it's definitely Brickworks. And uh, Brickworks does a few other things too. They've got uh, interests in uh, a couple of other things other than just the the, the, the bricks. Yeah. But at least they run their business with very high return on equity, uh, minimal debt, and their earnings keep growing. If I look at James Hardy's earnings, in 2012, as far back as my 10 years of software shows without me having to go onto another page, they earned $1.33 per share. Um, over the last 12 months, they've earned $1.36 a share. That doesn't even cover the increase in inflation over the 10 years. And in the, the nine years in between, they earned less than in that first year and the last year. So if you're looking for a wealth winner, if you're looking for a company that's going to make you money, 
You want companies that are able to grow their earnings. Um, Scott mentioned earlier about Boral that they've got no pricing power. And I think the same largely applies to James Hardy. It's got very little in the way of pricing power. It's hard to see how this company is going to make you any long-term profits. And I, like uh, Scott, have no uh, knowledge or ability of how you can make uh, profits trading in and out of stocks. And in fact, uh, if anybody could show me how, and I spent probably 20 years of my life uh, tinkering with ideas to do that, uh, no, I'm probably exaggerating, wasn't that long, but, but at least 10 years, um, never found a method that worked, never found anybody who could prove they'd done it for any lengthy period of time. Much simpler to buy the best businesses and let their management just make you money year after year after yep. year. Yep, really good point. All right, uh, Howard, Vic wants a view on Technology One, um, saying, asking what's the present view of uh, downside in growth shares in the present climate of interest rates going up? And um, uh, does your philosophy, the team invest philosophy, continue to hold growth stocks for the long term and how much downside do you see in it? Uh, Technology One's been one of your favourites for a number of years. Is the price and PE low enough to buy this stock? Yeah, I think a good question. And firstly, uh, for disclosure, I've owned Technology One for yep. more than 10 years. I can't remember exactly when I bought them. But uh, I've owned them and I've added to them periodically over the years. So I've got quite a big dollop of te Technology One uh, in my portfolios. Um, we also have it in our fund, in our Conscious Investor Fund. It's been one of our long-term holdings there too. It's got very high return on equity. Its return on equity has averaged over the last 10 years around 30%. Its earnings have been growing pretty consistently at around 11 and 12%. And um, it's achieved it with a minimal, usually zero debt. So in other words, it's got all the components of being a long-term wealth winner. So the two questions the viewer really wants to know is, uh, by the way, I don't really know what growth stocks are or value stocks are. I just want to be buying companies that are going to prove wealth winners. Um, so uh, putting aside the, whether it's a growth stock or it isn't a growth stock, its earnings are growing, um, but uh, its PE ratio is quite high, um, looking at its historic PE ratio. So at the moment, the company is relatively expensive, as are many companies, because interest rates have been so low. I would expect PE ratios right across the board to drop with, PE, um, with interest rates rising. And of course, those with the highest PEs will drop the most. So this one being on a fairly high PE, it's not high compared to those hundreds and hundreds of unprofitable companies that uh, have infinite PE ratios, they'll be the ones hurt the most. But it did get down, as you can see on the graph there, just below $10 recently. And a lot of Team Invest members were piling in uh, at that time. And our fund, our Conscious Investor Fund, bought some there. So I think you would say from a Team Invest viewpoint, everybody was very comfortable adding to their holdings under $10. I didn't personally add at that time, uh, but only because I wasn't paying that much attention and hadn't realized that it had dropped below 10 um, so, you know, it's sort of $10, I think it's a very, very good buy. But it, because it's growing, its earnings are 12% a year, even if you overpaid a bit, in the long term, you'll be fine. Right, right. Okay. Um, Scott, Technology One. 
Yeah, I've struggled with Tech One's PE. Howard's done a wonderful job explaining the kind of mechanism of, of price over time. And at 46 odd times earnings, you're paying a lot for a business that is in that. Look, here's the thing it's a really high quality business. So it's always important to separate the business from the shares and then try and combine that back again. Do I like Technology One's business? I love that business. If you look at I mentioned at the top, if you look at the, the earnings growth of that, the chart is phenomenal. Um, honestly, you would almost swear someone had managed that or, or produced it out of an Excel spreadsheet. It is just an absolute straight line, bottom left, top right. It's exactly what you want from a business. The question or the challenge for a lot of these high quality companies, by the way, it's they become a rope for their own back because investors love that look so much. They absolutely pile in. They, you know, um, ARB Fleetwood back in the day was another one of those businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and the old ALS, uh, you know, the the ones that become the, the, the almost the old articles of faith, the old stalwarts, get grabbed by retail investors who say, oh, thank goodness I found a high quality business. I love it. I'm going to hold it. It's going to be great. It might be. And that, that's when you then got to overlay the share price. To Howard's point, this one I think is just, it's just too expensive for me. I love the business. I've wanted to own it for years now. It's gone up over that time. So maybe I'm the silly one for not buying the shares when they were cheaper. But at 46 times earnings, the question for investors is, can you justify the price you're paying based on future earnings. And I don't think you can, not with technology one. At a at a lower price, I can't wait to buy the shares. Um, it just strikes me that either they have to grow faster than they have in the past, or the share price has to come down, or you're hoping that forever and ever, investors continue to pay 40 something times earnings. Because if this goes back to 25, 30, even 35 times earnings, you're looking at a decline of somewhere between a third or a quarter, about a half in the share price, if nothing else changes, but still the most wonderful business that it is. Yep. And yet investors simply say, I'm gonna pay 23 times earnings, not 46. Nothing else changes about the business at all. You lose half your money. Now, I'm yep. not saying it's gonna happen. I don't do predictions as you well know. This is just one that I think, I love the business. It's a perennial wish list stock. Let me spit that out. <laughs> when you get the chance at a good enough price, buy it. I just can't buy, pay 46 times earnings for it. Okay, under, under 10? Does it start like the, the Team Invest sort of members have been sort of piled in under 10? Is that, or Look, you'd have to go a bit further, fair bit further down? Howard knows better than me. I think if you if you take the change in share price and put it as a proportion of the PE. So if you're saying, okay, this is an 11, was $11.10 stock, something like that. If it falls below 10, that's a 10, 11, 12% share price fall. That would take the PE from 46 down to 40. <laughs> That's oh, what I mean okay. about, yeah. you know, at, at such a high yeah. PE, it just doesn't get cheap enough for me. Yeah. Now, I could be I could be being too conservative here. You do have to pay up for quality sometimes, and I don't mind doing that. Um, I just think this is probably, I pay 30 times earnings for Tech One. I might, you might squeeze me to 33 or 34 times if I'm feeling right. really generous. And I think the future is yep. really bright. I just think it's too much to pay. Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, I'm, I'm certainly not disagreeing with uh, Scott's great business, very expensive. Um, and if you look at it from a different point of view, what you can say to yourself is you can say, if I buy it and I pay, for instance, a 40p, which is roughly what we're talking about, it is expensive. There's no question of that. But if its earnings are growing at 12, 13, somewhere around that percent per year, over five years, the earnings will roughly have doubled anyway. So yeah, if the yeah. earnings have doubled in five years, if the PE halves, I wouldn't have lost any money and I'll still be in a great business, but I probably won't be super enthused about that investment over that time. Yeah. Over 10 yeah. years, I'll end up being enthused. So if you are going to buy any company with a very high PE, mm. you've got to be prepared to hold it a long, long, long time. 
Yeah, mm. and you, you lay over a common theme from a lot of our experts on the call here recently saying, be careful about that tech sector, tech stocks until the middle of the year, you know, likely to be another step down. So hold your fire, but as Scott and Howard been saying, it's a great business, keep it on your watch list. Absolutely. There'll be a position to buy in the future. Just be a bit patient. Um, let's go to a, a totally different sector, airline sector. Um, Warren Buffett said he'd never invest in airlines. Um, uh, Howard, Regional Express, Camille wants to know, would you, would you invest in this airline? Uh, no, I wouldn't, uh, or any <laughs> for that matter. Uh, Warren, in fact, like Todd and Ted, the two people he's got doing uh, running portfolios within the group now, ha has bought into and since sold a couple of airlines. He bought in when the beginning of COVID and everybody was crying about airlines and sold out. But, um, uh, you know, airlines overall around the world have earned a negative amount of profits for their shareholders in the period since the Wright brothers first flew. So as Buffett often says, he, he, he would love to think that if he'd had the foresight when the Wright brothers flew uh, to have shot them down on behalf of investors, he would have been doing investors a really good service. Um, airlines are terrible businesses and there's a very good reason why. Hugely capital intensive. You buy these incredibly expensive airplanes. You then need a lot of infrastructure to run them and staff and really, you're selling a commodity because your bum on a seat on one plane doesn't feel much different to your bum on a seat in another plane. They may give you fractionally better food, um, but the food's certainly not wonderful food anyway. They may give you a fractionally better seat. It's a teeny bit more comfortable. But really, people buy airline tickets largely on price. And because of that, they price takers, not price makers, with high capital costs, and every time they have a plane that's not quite full, they're not making any money. Yeah. So, terrible business. Yeah. Scott? Yeah, I can't disagree. Um, the funny thing about Buffett is he made he made the comment about having a, a phone number to call Aeroholics Anonymous if you ever thought about buying an airline again. <laughs> and, and this was before he bought the last lot that Hal's already mentioned. So, he's, he's human like the rest of us. Not only he made the mistake once, he made the same mistake again and lost even more money the second time. It's a really, yep. like, here's the thing. One thing I think is really important as an investment, as an investor to think about, excuse me, let me spit that out too, is a, a kind of approach, you're only as profitable as your least rational competitor allows you. Like that prism, right? To Howard's point, there's nothing about airlines that needs to be a bad business, except they are absolutely overstuffed with capacity and always have been. If all of a sudden we ran out of aeroplanes, airlines would be a wonderful business because there'd be more demand than supply. It just turns out that people can't help themselves. Governments, billionaires and others can't help themselves but launch an airline and then add more capacity. And there's always been overcapacity for decades, for 50 years, there's been overcapacity. There's no reason why it needs to necessarily be that way. It just is. And to Howard's point, when you understand the business model of an individual business, and then the competitive dynamics of an industry, it gives you a sense of how much money there is to go around and whether you can justify it. Yeah. And with airlines, you simply just can't justify it. Rex is a really difficult one. It's been all over the place business-wise. Um, profits are, it's actually been profitable for nine of the last 10 years. Unfortunately, the last year was when it wasn't profitable for. And it's been you know, up and down. Profits have gone from six or seven cents a share up to about 30 cents a share in 2020. And then last year fell to be a small loss. 
trying to price that is really, really difficult. And normally I would say there's a price for most assets. I think that's largely true. But the question for any investor is what happens now that Qantas and Virgin are back in the air? What happens now that Alliance Aviation, another competitor is trying to get business there? There is too much capacity to go around. There almost always has been. And it really always doesn't matter which airline you buy in that scenario. You're going to be very, very, very lucky to make a dollar. Um, I think Qantas is trading roughly at the same price that Jeff Dixon wanted to take it over, what, 15 years ago? Uh, Rex isn't trading much better. Um, I think I wrote an article for, about Rex when I first started the Motley for 11 years ago, and it was trading about a dollar at that point. Now it's $1.25. It's just a really, really tough industry. Just avoid it. Um, there's many, many better places for your money. I wouldn't put it in airlines. Yep, yep. Uh, oil prices, the biggest costs, which go up at somebody else's decision. And also, yeah. particularly Qantas, a lot of the other overseas airlines as competitors are owned by countries who right. are prepared to subsidise it just to get tourists in for the flow and effect of the economy. So you're up against that. Yeah, I agree. It's a yep. really complex sector. Um, Scott Wayne wants to be on V-Moto. We're going to talk mm. electric motorbikes and mopeds. Um, Wayne says they've had positive improving revenue and profits over the last four years, continue to increase market share through an increasing distribution network. However, its share price keeps being beaten down. Is it because it's based in China and their manufacturing is there and they lack board experience? Um, what do you think of Vmoto and does Wayne have a couple of good points there? Yeah, I think he does. It's a really challenging one, Vmoto, for all the reasons you talked about, Koshi. And this is where, again, separating the business from the share price is so vital. As an investor, start with the business. Work out whether you like it, whether you think it's going to work. Because yeah. as Howard said, if you own a business for long enough, you will get the returns of the business itself rather than the share price. It's not an excuse to buy just anything or an excuse to pay way too much. Neither of us are saying that. What we're saying is over time, if the business gets it right, it'll justify a whole lot of valuation sins. So that's the first starting point. VMATO seems to be doing reasonably well. If you look at the numbers, they lost to 14 in 2016. That's a little bit less in 2017. And they've made increasing amounts of profit since then. Revenue is growing, as Wayne said. There's a lot to like about Vmoto, the business. The challenge, and so this is electric Scott bikes and scooters. It, it's, a, it's a difficult one to try and work out what the future looks like for this industry. Speaking of bad industries, um, the, the, the car manufacturing business is almost as bad, generally speaking, as airlines. Motorbikes aren't all that different. It's just a really, really crowded sector. Harley for a while was a great bike maker because it had that brand premium. Even Harley in recent years has come under some share price and business stress as it tries to retool itself for the new consumer. It's just a really, really difficult one. Again, same sort of thing. Super capital intensive, very high unit price. Got to try and convince customers to pay more for yours and somebody else's. That's a really, really tough thing. Why is Vmoto's share price falling? I'm going to make a speculation here. It's not particularly useful, but let's go with it. Um, that... It's basically a story of the price having been too expensive in the past rather than necessarily right. being too cheap now. Remember when a share price falls, we look backwards and say, well, from point X, call it a year ago, it's fallen. Therefore, something must be wrong with the business or something must have gone badly. The question we should ask ourselves is, was that starting point ever reasonable in the first place? Because you can have a terrible business that goes up because it was too cheap. You can have a fantastic business. Berkshire, we'll talk about that again. It's fallen 50% from top to bottom, I think at least three times in its history. Was Berkshire ever a bad business? No. Was it ever overvalued? Yes. Was it ever undervalued? Absolutely. So when we talk about the share price movement, we're talking about the investor sentiment and decision-making, not the business itself. Bottom line, I like Vmoto a bit as a business. 
It's doing the right things. It's growing nicely. You can't ask more for the, from the company itself than what it's doing. So I want, I'm going to keep this one on my watch list as well. It's a small cap. It's going to be super volatile. China is, a, is an absolutely a, a risk and an issue. Will the money ever come back to individual shareholders? There is many sovereign risk with China as an investment destination. So we've got to be mindful of that. Uh, so I like the business. At 14 times earnings, not even that expensive. So this is one, if you are looking for a growing company at a relatively inexpensive price, this is absolutely one you should have a look at. I'm not going to say it's a buy just yet because, as I said, it went from many years of, of, uh, of business failure, not, not investment business. The other thing is, by the way, it was meaningfully profitable in 2015 and then subsequently three years of losses. So it's not also a business that is necessarily so bulletproof that it's not, yeah. uh, you know, that its business performance isn't at the whim of customer demand, uh, trend, fad, whatever. I like electrics. I like bikes in the developing world. It's a good place to be. They're growing nicely. Keep your eye on it. Uh, not a buy okay. just yet. But if you did want to speculate with a small cap, I wouldn't. But if you did, uh, this is one you should definitely have on your short list. Howard? Yeah, um, I don't get as enthused. I mean, I love the idea that they are electric bikes. Um, but when I look at its results, as, as Scott pointed out, it made a fair bit of money in 2015, lost a pile of money in 16, 17, lost a small amount of money in 18, and now has been making increasing profits. We're looking for companies with consistently high return on equity. It doesn't have consistently high return on equity. It's had high return on equity for the last two years. And it also had high return on equity in 2015. But in between, it lost more money than it made in those three years. So has it got consistently high return on equity? No. And if we look at the business of uh, electric motorbikes, I would assume, much as Scott has said, that with time, things it will be cheaper to make a factory, one presumes, uh, to make motorbikes than cars. There will be lots and lots and lots of competitors. And once again, the problem will be, unless you can somehow persuade customers, like for argument's sake, Rolls-Royce or Mercedes-Benz do, that people pay more for their mark uh, rather than just the vehicle they're getting. Um, it's hard to see how in the long term this is going to have decent-sized margins. So, um, now, uh, you know, uh, Warren Buffett also says you want to jump over one or step over one-foot hurdles rather than having to jump over seven-foot hurdles. This is a bit too complex to know, will it be a wealth winner? And therefore, it's easier to pass. You only want about 20 great companies in your portfolio anyway, maybe 25. So there are 2,200 to choose from. This wouldn't be in the top 25 or even okay. 50 or 100, in, in my right. opinion. Okay, doke. Um, what about NextDC, uh, Howard, the big data, data centre group? Um, Travis wants a view on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad they were around because uh, thanks to them, uh, a lot of our internet and so on works really well. But again, you know, the first thing you look at is return on equity and the return on equity has been anemic over 10 years. Uh, it's made losses in some years, profits in other years. I know they say, yeah, but our losses are caused by the fact that we uh, are depreciating these expensive assets and with time we'll have depreciated them and that'll be good. But it's an industry that things are changing so fast, you're always having to replace um, your uh, hardware. Um, and, uh, you know, w when a company's got that low return on equity for that many years, it's hard to get excited about it. So definitely not one that Team Invest members would be enthusiastic about. Uh, Scott? Scott? 
I like the next DC business idea. I like the growth story. They've done a remarkable job building out as Howard said, internet connectivity and the ability for us all to, to transmit, uh, store, access data over the internet. That's a wonderful thing. It's also done really well as a business over the last, I don't know, five, seven, eight, ten 10 years. Uh, the challenge, I think, is the business model question. And here's, the, here's where it comes down. Now, look, from a, from a, I think they're, to Howard's point, I think they're actually legitimately right in terms of the, the capex up front. We know businesses like Vocus, for example, back in the day, spent a small fortune, maybe a large fortune laying cable. That costs a lot of money up front. And then they creamed the profit for years after that. So it can be, you can have a very successful business with massive upfront costs that you then make some money on after those costs are incurred. The challenge is, to Howard's point, he kind of intimated it, which is what happens business model-wise in the future? Now, one version of the future where NextDC does really well from here share price-wise, it's a story of they capture the market, they charge monopoly or monopoly-like rents to use their equipment. They've got the best equipment in the best places with the fastest speeds. Everyone wants to use them. And so they, everyone pays a premium. There's a supply shortage and a demand surplus. In other words, prices go up, and that's great for NextDC. The other version of the future is when data centers become relatively commoditized. And I am of the opinion that I think data centers, what we talk about those tech companies, they're really just kind of real estate investment trusts with some, with some storage. You, know, you buy a, a business like Bunnings or BWP Trust, Bunnings Warehouse Property Trust, it used to be yep. called, and you get the warehouses with a hardware store inside them. In this case, you're getting a property with racks of computers inside it. And what's to stop Amazon, IBM, or plenty of those other specialist providers, by the way, in the US that just do data centers again, either competing with, or taking, more importantly, taking business away from next day. So by simply dropping a, a data center next to theirs and saying, hey, we'll do it for 10, 15, 20% cheaper than that guy. And all of a sudden, again, as I said at the very beginning, the profit margin question is the only one that counts in the long run. Yeah. Yes, volume matters, but if you're not making a decent margin, like airlines, like James Hardy, very, very hard to turn a reliable profit and justify the current share price, given as how it's said the sort of returns. Now, it's been super volatile. I looked at the numbers. It's trading about 30 times cash flow. Again, if it can grow meaningfully and sustain those margins, those gross margins, not the not the net margins, how it's losing money. Um, but if, if the economics plays out at a sustainable level for a long time, this is a buy right now. But if it doesn't, if it goes the other way, then we are going to see a situation where it can be very, very difficult for shells to make money if this becomes much more competitive. I find yeah. it remarkable if you think about the likes of the international players say, are they really not going to come to Australia because next DC is too scary to compete with? Maybe, yeah. Or maybe they turn up and if they do in, in large numbers and start to play the game, want to grab this market, then next DC is at risk. Again, not sure which one of these plays out. And if it's all too hard, sometimes you just say, you know what, I don't know and walk past. Okay. All right. Let's uh, just recap the uh, first five stocks and stock of the day. Uh, um, Boral, a no from, uh, from both Howard and Scott. Same with James Hardy as well. In that space, they prefer Brickworks as, uh, if you want an investment in that sector. Uh, technology one, both agree. Great company, pretty expensive at the moment. Um, if it got below $10 a share, Howard would start look out and team invest uh, members, which they have done. Below $10, Scott would need it to go a bit further down, but keep it on your watch list. Regional Express, a no. Uh, Vmoto, a no, but certainly Scott has it on his watch list. 
and Next DC is a no. Just a reminder about our new uh, fantasy portfolio. It's live and trucking along. Our first investment committee meeting is available to watch online and you can see how our experts picked which stocks made it into the Calls High Conviction Fund. A reminder of the stocks in the portfolio, BHP, Macquarie, Minres, uh, Steadfast, Aristocrat Leisure, Ordinate, CSL, Next DC, and Universal Stores, uh, along with half units in Qantas and Digital um, Frontier Digital Ventures, 20% in cash. Now, because Next DC, Scott and Howard don't, uh, both don't like it, uh, that recommendation will go back to the investment committee to judge whether the next DC should stay there and any other stocks that have been recommended by our expert panels here on the call. So they'll keep sending your requests through. We'll go through the 10 stocks each day and that's the filter that feeds into the investment committee to see whether it should be part of the portfolio. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. Uh, of the call will be take a look at Sonic Healthcare, uh, Harvey Norman, Domain, Cube and also QBE. Um, Howard, uh, Liam wants a view on Sonic Healthcare saying uh, I'd imagine Howard would uh, class it as a wealth winner and it's currently quite cheap. Interested to uh, hear the thoughts of the panel. Of course, uh, it's in medical diagnostic services for uh, hospitals uh, headquartered in Sydney. What do you think of Sonic, Howard? Yeah, I think just for clarification, a wealth winner is a company with consistently high return on equity, achieved with little or no debt, and where the earnings have been growing uh, consistently uh, over a number of years. So on that basis, um, Sonic's got reasonably high return on equity. It's not at, at a level that we jump up and down with enthusiasm, but it passes our filters at nine of the 10 years. So one year was a bit below 10%. All the other years have been around about 11 and 12, uh, occasionally got closer to 13 than 12, except for the last year, 2021, where it more than doubled and return on equity is 20%. Now, what did that come from? It came from uh, effectively COVID, where suddenly vast numbers of PCR tests were being done, and that yeah. gave an enormous boost to Sonic's business. So the earnings per share, the same thing happened. Earnings per share had been growing slowly, um, but consistently, which was good, um, around about uh, 6 or so, 7% a year. Suddenly it shot up dramatically because of the last year. And the question is, is that sustainable? Now, we already know that the number of PCR tests has been reducing again, and um, the likelihood is that's going to go down to a much, much smaller number as there becomes less concern about COVID. I'm assuming, I could be wrong, um, but we, we seem to be uh, on the exit stage from this pandemic. So when you look at its PE ratio, it looks like it's on a very cheap PE of 11 or 11.6 or so. However, that's based on earnings being roughly double all the previous years mm. or double where we would have expected it to be. 
So probably you'd say that's on a PE of about 22. So the last thing about uh, a potential wealth winner is you've got to be able to buy it at a reasonable price. Um, it's probably reasonable. I wouldn't call it ex exceptionally cheap. But if you look back through history, you've been able to buy it in most years on a PE in the high teens. So if you say it's probable PE now is a little over 20, it's maybe a teeny bit expensive, um, not a rapidly growing wealth winner, but it has passed our filters almost every year. I don't think too many Team Invest members own it. They always feel that although it's one of the 50, 60 odd companies that pass our filters, there are always better ones that seem to come up in right. the top 20 and 30. So a very, very good company. Um, you, you could do a hell of a lot worse than investing in it, but um, not one of our top choices, but very good business. Okay. Scott? I'll try not to say what Howard said, Koshi, but what Howard said. Um, it, it's a really <laughs> difficult one because that PE looks really cheap. And I did the same. I, I had a double take. I thought, wow, Sonic's being cheap. Uh, a business like this is growing moderately. Um, again, you know, very decent uh, workmanlike business. This is, you know, right up the middle of the uh, um, Just getting it done year after year until last year when, of course, everything went bananas. And it's simply not going to continue. And the question, I guess, for investors right now is, do you want to pay 12 times last year's earnings, assuming they're continuing? Or do you say it's 20-something times uh, moderate level of earnings? There's not a lot of cyclicality there, so that base level of earnings is probably reasonable. Uh, you've got to be a little bit careful with businesses that grow quickly because they tend to fall into the trap of letting their costs grow as well. And then Blackmore is a great example of this. When the business goes away, they're stuck with a higher cost base because they've tooled up for this future that was going to be really, really bright. So I'm not saying that is necessarily the Sonic story, but I am a little bit concerned with any business has a, a spiky year of, of profit growth because you kind of think, okay, how much of that gets to hang around next year and how much of the cost hangs around? Because it's always easier to get rid of revenue, much harder to get rid of costs. It's a fine business. Um, again, as I said, as Howard said, um, it's it's. You, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily be keen to buy it at the high teens, but at some point it's it's worth buying just for a, a very stable kind of cornerstone-y kind of position in your portfolio. But it's just way too expensive right now. The right. market, I don't think, has factored in the fact that we go back to normal at some point. And when we do, I dare say we might see either the PE stay elevated or the share price fall. Either of those are probably bad news for medium-term shareholders. Long-term, if it compounds at that sort of rate, I guess you'll be okay. Um, but there are many, many better ideas out okay. there. All right. Kim wants to view uh, Scott on uh, Harvey Norman, the, the big retailer. A, a lot of people forget it's not just a retailer. Um, it's also a, um, uh, a property play, isn't it? Because mm. they own most of their stores. Yeah, they really do. Now, full disclosure, I, I own Harvey Norman shares and I think it's a buy for me just because it's too cheap to ignore. Harvey Norman is not going to shoot the lights out growth-wise anytime soon. It's had 50 years of being the original category killer in homewares and electricals. Jerry runs a very, very good operation. And not everyone loves Jerry Harvey, and that's fair enough, but it's hard to, hard to dispute his retail expertise. The growth in Harvey Norman has been fantastic over that long period of time. And for whatever reason, the market's decided that retail is on the nose right now. That makes it hard if you bought the shares at a higher price. You feel like the market's telling you you're wrong, you're an idiot, uh, you're going to lose money. You know, what are you doing there? The flip side, of course, is that if you look at the shares now, um, they just are really, really, really inexpensive. It's priced effectively for continual decline. Even at the current share price, 
um, it, it could actually be in moderate decline for an extended period of time. You'd still do okay if you factor in the investment mass behind it. But I think it's going to keep growing moderately. That moderate growth is probably good enough at most prices at the current price. Uh, just, just way too cheap to ignore. Obviously, better in, <laughs> over the last couple of years, uh, last couple of months, I should say. Sorry, um, it's been at better prices. Uh, but you don't have to necessarily buy at the bottom, right? This is a this is coming up P of 10.6 times, with a dividend yield of 6.6% fully franked. Wow. Now let's assume that dividend can't be sustained. Let's assume it falls by a third. Just pick a number. That's still four point. Was it 4.4% fully franked? Which grosses up to close enough to seven percent. So it's just it's a, it's a story of a, a, just a, a quality business, not going to be super fast growing. If you're looking for a, you know a tech superstar, this is not your company. But I think it's going to deliver really long-term compound gains. We talked about buying great businesses at you know okay prices and, and time being the friend return for you as a shareholder. I think Harvey Norman's almost the reverse. It's a great business, okay. maybe not as great as it was. Certainly, the growth isn't as great as it was. But if you think about buying it now, just holding on as it continues to grow moderately, throw that dividend on top, a little bit of price mm. appreciation probably as the PE normalizes and profit continues to grow, it's a pretty good one, two, three punch okay. for me. Um, Scott, um, how would rather? Uh, what's your view on, yeah, uh, I, I on think the Harvey Norman? Yeah, I think Scott's covered it pretty well. Uh, I, I agree with the... Uh, it's, uh, it's had a high return on equity for a long time, so that's good. Its debt levels are low, and its earnings are growing, as Scott says, moderately. So it's not going to shoot the lights out, but it is at an incredibly low PE. The only thing that team invest members have failed it on, and, and it's not held by many team invest members, even though it passes our filters, we've looked at it in great detail a couple of times and come to the conclusion that the accounts were somewhat on the opaque side. Now, when I say opaque, I don't mean that there's anything dishonest about it, but simply it's hard to understand. And our members generally look at a business that's hard to understand and say, you know, if it's really shooting the lights out and it's hard to understand, we'll put more effort in. If it's doing moderately well and it's hard to understand, wouldn't we be better off spending time learning about another company instead? And that's why Harvey Norman has fallen over whenever we've run a smart on it. People have just decided too much work for something that is not that spectacularly likely to be a wealth winner. Okay. All right. Um, Greg. Greg wants a view, uh, Howard, on Domain, the uh, the big um, listed Abbott digital uh, platform for property, runs number two in the market to uh, REA. What do you think of Domain? And that's the problem. In this kind of space where digital grab works out to be the top player, has network uh, effect of everybody needs to be on it to sell and everybody needs to be on it to, to look to buy, um, being second is a big disadvantage, and you see it in the numbers. So REA has very high return on equity. Domain's got incredibly low return on equity. The highest it's been since the time it's been listed, its best year was only 4.70%. Now, that's not very exciting and certainly not the indication of it being a wealth winner. Uh, it, it, its earnings have been growing a bit, but again, uh, it's only a short history, so it's hard to tell how it would be doing. It's got very little debt, but it's one of the sectors uh, where you, you don't want to be the number two player. You, you, you really want to be investing in the number one player when you can buy it at a reasonable price. So a no from me. Okay, Scott? 
I'm not quite as negative as Howard on this company specifically in the digital space, despite agreeing completely with what he says in almost every other case in the digital realm. Most online marketplaces are winner takes all or winner takes almost all. Um, there are very few places, think about Seek, how many times there was a competitor try to knock Seek off or car sales. Um, at one point, CarPoint was running literally free ads and still couldn't knock car sales off, even though people had to pay to list their car on car sales. And I think the difference for me, I, I, I'm not going to say domains a buy, by the way, I think it's too expensive to buy at 40 something times earnings currently. But what I think is different here is if you're selling a million dollar house, for example, and you know some viewers are on realestate.com, some viewers are on domain, maybe most people are on both, and the agent says, do you want to just do one of them? If you're selling a million dollar house and the difference is a couple of grand, you're probably going to say, now nah, let's do both, just in case the buyer I want is over on that platform. And I think that's really, really, really unusual. It's not the case for employment. It's not the case for cars. Um, I think this is one where domain can sustain a second place. I think, by the way, most of the profit will still go to realestate.com because they have most eyeballs. That's absolutely true. Um, and so domain is always going to be, or at least I assume always going to be, um, the, the poor cousin, the, the you know, the, um, the ignored second child. Uh, but I think it's a business that has a place. and I don't think it's at any threat of being wiped out by real estate. So for me, it's a question of how profitable can it be? The answer is probably less profitable than real estate, but still profitable enough to justify looking at it as a business. My concern is twofold. The first is the price. The second is we know that even the major banks are saying house prices are going to fall next year. Mm. And maybe they don't, maybe they do. But if, you're, if your business is reliant on a buoyant property market where people are paying more for houses and the frenzy, not, not so much even the price, but the frenzy around flipping houses, buying and selling is so important. Now, maybe it's always going to be important in Australia. We are the, the house na housing nation. But at the moment, I think you're kind of at peak frenzy, right. peak optimism, peak whatever, peak activity is probably the point. And so if you've got fewer listings or people aren't paying those for those premium listings, domains business isn't as uh, successful as it is today. So you've got a business probably at near or at the peak of a market and at a high PE, moving forward to a business that probably is less bubbly, less frothy than it is currently, that is housing. And then maybe at that point, investors take a dim view of paying okay. 43 times earnings for something that isn't growing quite so fast. So I like the business. I don't love the price, uh, but I would buy it. I don't think it's going to get wiped out anytime soon. Just not today and not at this price. Okay. Uh, Scott, Sally wants a view on Cube, the uh, big logistics facilities company. So I don't mind logistics, uh, but again, this is one of those businesses with very little in the way of differentiation. Cube will say, of course, every business we talk about, by the way, will tell us how great they are, why they're unique, why they're different, why they can justify higher prices. And then you look at the balance sheet, you look at the P&L and say, show me the money, Where, where's yep. the evidence? And Cube's story profit-wise has been all over the place over the past 10 years. It's a business that has been, uh, you know, it had three really great years, uh, the last of these was last year, by the way, which is another sign. Like Sonic, you should be a little bit careful of the PE. But even then, the PE is still 31 times that number. Wow. Uh, but uh, for eight of the last 10 years, or seven of the last 10 years, profits were lower than last year. So it's a little bit cyclical. It's a little bit volatile, a little bit variable. And you've got a business that really is all over the place. In fact, four years ago, profit was less than almost about a third of what it was last year. So you look at PE and say, how much do you pay for a business? with that sort of earnings volatility. And the normal answer is you try and take an average over the cycle. Now you can simply ignore it and say, look, I don't know it too hard, that's completely reasonable. 
Or if you said, okay, how would I price it? You'd say, well, let's take an average price, average earnings level, I should say, over that period of time, over five, seven, 10 years, and say, what's it likely to earn over an economic cycle or over an extended period of time? How much would I pay for that? And am I happy to ride the wave of the share price volatility in the meantime? If the answer to all those things is yes, you're probably going to pay, I know for business isn't really growing structurally, maybe 15, 16 times. And yet they're currently asking 31 times, or shareholders wow. are, asking 31 times earnings for a business that last year doubled profit. Now, if the upside here is maybe this is the beginning of a new future. You can never yeah. rule it out, right? We, we, we have to look back and say, what's it done? And then understand the strategy and look forward and say, is it likely the future is better or worse or the same as the past? Looking at Cube right now, there's not enough evidence to believe that this isn't some new sustainable mm -hmm. level of profit. It's far more likely, in my view, that the average yearly future profit is less than last year's number, and that makes it even more expensive okay. than it looks. Um, I, I said, I, I don't dislike the business. It's done a nice job building it. It's just not worth buying at this price. Um, Howard? Yeah, I, I think that's a terrific summary from, from Scott. And uh, when you look at its return on ev equity, it bears out what Scott says about, you know, every business says they've got wonderful moats and they can differentiate themselves <laughs> from their competitors. And then you look at the numbers and you see, well, they obviously caught um, because they've never had return on equity in the 10 years that, that uh, oh, one year, yes, yeah, sorry, one year in 10, they've had return on equity of more than 10%. Most of the time, it's been far, far, far lower than that. Okay. If they were really able to differentiate themselves, they'd have higher return on equity. So, uh, and as, as Scott points out, the earnings have been all over the place. So how would you predict it? Our members would simply look at this and say, there's easy money to make elsewhere. Why bother with this one? Okay. We'll have to do this last stock uh, that Paul wants us to look at reasonably quickly, gents, because we're running out of time. Uh, Howard, Paul wants a view on QBE insurance, the general insurer that is the ugly duckling turning into a bit of a swan with rising interest rates. Probably, probably not. The rising interest rates will help all insurers, but somehow insurers, in order to win, win business, this word win, business away from their competitors, always seem to want to price risk at less than it costs in the hope that somehow or other they'll get lucky and the risks won't occur and they'll make the money out of the uh, uh, float that they invest. Now, the float will do better in the next few years because interest rates are rising, but insurance companies seem wedded to this idea of we have to have more volume even if we have to price our premiums at less than it costs us. So yeah. um, it, it, it's a bit like the airline industry in a way, in that way. Um, they, they get so hung up on having float because Buffett's done so well with float that they right. actually price right. their premiums too low. Buffett's companies don't. So a no from me. Okay, so that's the difference, Scott. I was going to say uh, Warren Buffett makes a lot of money out of insurance <laughs> companies, but they set their premiums well. Correct. Yeah, Buffett has the benefit of not needing to chase yearly gains in insurance premiums to justify himself to the market. Yeah. And so he just will simply not write a policy if he can't get a good enough price and just let it go. Yeah. And the insurance business will be down year on year, top line wise, in terms of premiums written. He's like, I don't care. I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not banking revenue here, I'm banking profit. The other insurers tend to say, well, we've got to grow on last year. The market expects this and that. Yeah. Pricing's hard, but I guess we'll have to just swallow it and do what we have to do. There's an institutional imperative in a lot of businesses, not just insurers, by the way, but in this business, it's a really, really tough one to overcome. 
I don't like QBE much at all. If you're going to play this space, I think I'd go IAG over QBE. Um, I don't have a problem with ignoring both, though. You don't have to pay, take a, a view in any industry. You don't have to do a no as I can have two of everything. So, um, no, give QBE a miss. Okay. Scott Phillips from What Leap Fall. Always great to have you on. Thank you, sir. As Thanks, likewise, Scott. Howard Coburn from Team Invest. Have a good rest Pleasure. of the week, Joe. Thank you. Let's uh, recount the final five stocks. Sonic and No from both. Um, Scott does like Harvey Norman. Uh, Howard doesn't. A no on Domain, a no on Cube, and a no on QBE. If you've got any stocks you'd like us to take a look at, uh, flick them in an email to me, the call at ausbiz.com.au, or tweet us using the Ausbiz TV handle. So check out all the stocks in the calls portfolio at ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.